out of one of those kingdoms, the kingdom that took over the areas of Turkey and Syria, the northern part of this dynasty uh, that was divided into four kingdoms. That was the dynasty called the Seleucid dynasty. Out of the Seleucid dynasty came this one horn that was called the little horn of chapter 8, not to be uh, mixed with in the sense of, of comparing to the seventh chapter that has a little horn also. That's a different one. We'll, we'll refer to it later. But the little horn that came out of one of the horns of the, of the four dynasties or four empires was a person historically named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes is the name he gave himself, uh, which means the illustrious manifest one. And eventually he believed that he was God himself, so he called himself Epiphanes as God manifest or the manifested God. And the people who saw what kind of a crazy person he was, they called him Antiochus Epimanes, which means Antiochus the madman. Epiphanes and Epimanes a play on words. Anyway, he is the one whose hatred for the Jewish people and the desire to uh, force them to accept the Greek culture and the Greek gods caused him to go into Jerusalem, caused him to take over a hundred thousand lives of the people who would not bow to another god, and eventually desecrate the temple. with uh, the uh, sacrifice of a pig and, and as well as uh, the swine uh, broth being put on all of the uh, instruments and utensils of, of, uh, of the temple. I mean, he, he just desecrated completely. Eventually, he set up a, a, a shrine to Zeus, and uh, the throne itself was for him to sit on. Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes, as he's called in English, is a type of, or a forerunner to, the Antichrist. Now, this is what Daniel has been receiving in a dream, in a vision. And so you can, you can kind of get an idea that Daniel is not enjoying this dream. And we'll see that as we go on into the rest of this chapter. But as he comes to the next portion of this dream, in verse 13, Daniel says, Then I heard one saint speaking. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll just, you know, normally I have it in my nose to tell you what that means. But I'll just tell you now. The word saint there is the word that is used for a holy one. And so this Holy One is not a person per se, but in fact would be considered an angelic being. So understand that as we read on. Then I heard one saint speak, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spoke, 
How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. <clears throat> so we, we spend most of our time, as I said earlier last week, focusing our attention on that little horn of verse 9 in Daniel's vision of that he-goat that represented the Greco-Macedonian kingdom that defeated the ram of Persia. That little horn, as I said, came out of the four notable horns. I'm just kind of reviewing my own reviewing, uh, which replaced the reign of Alexander. Talked about that. And he represented the person of Antiochus. And then the uh, one thing that you need to understand about Antiochus again also, and this is something to add, even though he came out of the Greek, Greco-Macedonian uh, culture, in fact, being a Seleucid king, he was a Syrian king. He was the Syrian king because he ruled in that area of Syria. And he emerged, as I said, from the Seleucid dynasty. And perhaps more than any other ruler, he oppressed the holy nation of Israel. So, we're caught up. It was the historian Josephus, along with the apocryphal first book of the Maccabees. I talked about the apocrypha last week, the extra books that are not added to the canon of Scripture. But this is a historic book and is very important to the Jewish people because of this. Also, the history, uh, uh, the historian Josephus, who wrote uh, uh, much of the Jewish history, together they gave accounts about the persecution and the insulting actions that the Lord's people suffered at the hands of this king. But here in chapter 8, we're told that this madman Antiochus attacked the saints, the sanctuary, and the scriptures. This is what he attacked. So we're going to look at, for, brief, uh, for a brief moment, we're going to look at the specifics of what he attacked. He attacked the saints, he attacked, which was the Jewish people. He attacked the sanctuary, and he attacked the scriptures. We saw that in what we uh, were looking at last week. I wanted to add it here today as, as the springboard to the rest of the chapter. But if you go back to verse 10 of our text, it says, And it waxed great, in other words, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. In other words, this, this horn, uh, and, and it cast down some of the host, and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. That, uh, as I said last week, is speaking of the people of, of Israel, not so much of angels. Verse 11 says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And so here we see how he attacked the sanctuary. He attacked the place where that was holy uh, unto the Jewish people, as and it was holy unto God. And then in verse 12 it says, And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of, the, uh, of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground. So not only was the sanctuary desecrated, but also the word of God was taken and also cast to the ground, and it was as well uh, uh, soiled, as it were. And it practiced and it prospered. In other words, it practiced what it came to do and it prospered in what it was doing, speaking of the horn. So as I said, he had some 100,000 Jews massacred, those who would not bow their knees to the Olympian god Zeus. And that is why Daniel focuses on the extent of his power grab. 
Daniel focuses on the extent of his power grab. If you go back to verse 9 now of the same chapter, it says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, which means wax means to grow exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. <clears throat> now, I did talk about this a little bit last time. But that very statement, the pleasant land, conveys God's thoughts, His own thoughts, about the nation and the land of Israel. The pleasant land is an expression that can also be rendered the glory of gems, the most precious and pleasant of jewels, as it were, to God. Because Ezekiel used this term as well, and only Daniel and Ezekiel used this term. And it's interesting that these two men used the term because both Daniel and Ezekiel were exiled. They were not in the land when all of this came to them. They were exiles in captivity. And yet in Ezekiel 20 verse 6 it says, In the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt, this is God speaking of course, into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. You see, Ezekiel takes it right out of the words of God Himself. That the land itself was the glory of all lands. So we know then that this is God's view of the land. Later on, and of course he's speaking about the, the sins of Israel, because he says in Ezekiel 20 verse 15, Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness, that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. So he actually uses the phrase twice in this chapter. But it, it, in effect, it is the very same phrase that Daniel uses, or that is used in Daniel, when it says uh, the pleasant land. Literally, it is the, the glory of the land, or the glory of gems, as it were. And so, as I said, remember that Daniel and Ezekiel were both exiles from the land, and they use this term to tell us how precious the land is to God, and how serious a matter it is for other peoples to seize it or to plunder it. Even to this day, within the last 15, 20 years, and we could even go back further than that, but every time the land of Israel is compromised by anyone, or the land of Israel is, is put up to uh, be divided in any, any such way, God responds. God responds. There have been some researchers who have, have, have taken this, uh, this, uh, uh, taken to looking at, at certain natural disasters, as they call them, natural disasters that, that happen at the very same time after, uh, take for example, after uh, the United States, uh, uh, one of the administrations uh, previous to the present one, had, uh, tried to work out something with the Palestinians to divide the land. When that happened, so did some natural disasters that were, that were uh, very, very painful to, to go through in this country. One of them was Katrina. During that time, there, was, there were talks to, you know, to divide the land. 
God says, that land's not yours to divide. It's mine. And I won't divide it. And I know, who's it belong- I know who I want to give it to. So every time something like that happens. So we don't, we're not going to go into that whole thing. But I'm just, I'm just bringing that up because I want you to realize the land is precious to God. And, and, the, and, and, and the more we go there, the more we see that. that. That's a commercial for next time we're going to Israel. The more we go there, the more we see that. So let's not forget this as we study biblical prophecy. And so this part of the vision anticipated the rise of a Greco-Macedonian ruler over the northern kingdom of Turkey, Syria, that what we call not, uh, the, the, king of, the kingdom of the north who conquered the people in the land of Israel, desecrated her temple, uh, interrupted her worship, demanded for himself the authority and the worship that belongs to God. What does he become? He becomes the prefiguring of the demonic attitude of the coming Antichrist. He prefigures the demonic attitude of the coming Antichrist. That is what Antiochus Epiphanes is. A prefiguring of the Antichrist. So we come back to our text for just a moment. Verses 13 and 14. Then I heard one saint speaking and another saint saying to that certain saint which spoke or spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of the desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? In other words, how long is all of this stuff going to go on, or how long is Antiochus going to be doing this? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. As we arrive now to verses 13 and 14, the Lord allows for this conversation between angels, because saints here would refer to the holy ones, in this case angelic beings, this conversation is allowed for Daniel's benefit. The conversation is allowed for Daniel to hear it. The question had to do with how long the sacrifices of the temple would be suspended and the sanctuary be desecrated. How long was this painful time going to be? We are told by the answer given that Antiochus would only prosper for a time. Now granted, it's not a short time, but it's a time. We're given 2,300 days or 2,300 days. Literally, the word days there in the Hebrew is not the word, is not the word yom for days. It is actually the word erev, E-R-E-V, erev. For those of you who had your your Hebrew lesson when we went to, to Israel this past January, Erev tov means good night or evening. Erev is evening. So interesting that it's 2300 evenings. So Antiochus is going to prosper for a time, 2300 days or evenings, even though he thought himself as a god and he would last there forever. Think of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. He considered himself powerful enough 
to lead uh, his Nazi Germany for a thousand years. And he never thought that he'd be dead doing it. Okay, so. But uh, remember, he was also demon-possessed. I would say Antiochus was also. So his days were clearly numbered. Antiochus's days were clearly numbered. Now, historically, in 171 B.C., so get this, this is very important. In 171 B.C., Antiochus murdered the high priest in Israel. His name was Onias II. And that was the start of those 2300 days, or about six and a third years. The date for the cleansing of the temple has been established now uh, by historians to be December the 25th. Interesting date. December the 25th of 165 B.C. 2,300 days. Just a little over six years. So let us not forget that this amazing and specific prophecy was written by Daniel some 350 years before the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. He wrote it 350 years before. Now, a lot of critics will say, no, he did. You know, it, was, it wasn't really Daniel that wrote it. Somebody that knew that Antiochus would be coming along wrote it. But Jesus is the one who confirms to us in Matthew chapter 24 when he mentions the prophet Daniel speaking of the abomination of desolation. When Jesus says that, you know that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. And it wasn't written hundreds of years later. So it gives us great encouragement that the Lord not only knows the future, but He also guides the future. And if we want a good foundation for our understanding of biblical prophecy, we need to always know that. We need to always know that God knows things before time, because He knows uh, the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So God always knows the future, but He also guides the future. This is why we can look at the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And by the way, the book of, uh, of Genesis to the book, of, or I should say, the, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole book, the whole Word of God, is really a prophetic book. There's not one book in the whole of, of Scripture that doesn't have some sense of, of, of prophecy in it. So, He guides the future. He has told us what is yet to come. He has told us the things that are coming. And we just need to be ready for those things and we need to trust that that's going to happen. So here's Daniel now. He's waiting to get an understanding from the Lord because he doesn't know what's going on. And this is why the interpretation of the vision is really important now to come. Now, what do we know about Daniel? We know one thing, that Daniel actually was given a gift of interpreting dreams because he interpreted the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar back in chapters 2 and 4. He interpreted them. Not only did he interpret them, by the way, in chapter 2, but Nebuchadnezzar told, told his guys, he said, first of all, I don't want you just to tell me what you think the interpretation is. I want you to tell me the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar went to Daniel, and Daniel or brought Daniel to him, and he was the only one who could actually tell him the dream and the interpretation. So what's different in this chapter? 
Daniel is giving a vision, but he doesn't know what this means. Well, that's a, that's a good thing, too, because it shows us that Daniel's human. And he really needs to know what's going on. Why is he getting these visions, as he did in chapter 7 and chapter 8? So in verse 15, it says, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai. Where are the banks of Ulai? They're over in Shushan, in the area of Persia. So Daniel is transported there in this particular vision, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Now, we get the name of one of those saints or angels or messengers. And his name is Gabriel. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid. And I fell upon my face, but he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So he tells him immediately when this is coming, the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep and on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright, which means he touched me and, and made me to stand upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee known, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. So he's very clear that this is going to be at the end time, it is going to be at, at, at a, really the end of the end time, the last end of the indignation. And that kind of points us to the time of the tribulation period that is yet to come. We'll talk more about that later. But this is the second time that we do find Daniel unable to interpret a dream, even though he had been able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. So the Lord sent his messenger Gabriel to interpret the meaning of the vision to Daniel. Now clearly, Daniel was frightened and shocked by the appearance of this angelic being. It certainly had an appearance of a man, but probably in, in such a glorious way that, that uh, Daniel couldn't really take what he saw caused him to fall flat on his face, laid out before this angel. Gabriel, by the way, is mentioned in, in two sections of Scripture. He's mentioned here in Daniel, and he's also mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, he makes a visitation to the father of John the Baptist. His name was Zacharias. And in Luke 1.19, and I just share this so that we can um, see his mention. It says, And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. So he is known 
in the Scriptures as a messenger of God. To take very important and very significant messages to people. So there is one to Zacharias about his son, John the Baptist. And then Gabriel was sent not long after that to Mary, who would become the mother of Jesus, the woman who would bring forth the son, the son of God. Luke 1, 26. So just a few verses later, it says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And you can read on if you'd like. But his name, the name Gabriel or, or, or Gabriel is, uh, means mighty man of God. Mighty man of God. And as I said, he is certainly pointed out as being one in appearance of a man. But his mission here was to explain that the vision was pertaining to the times of the end, events future from Daniel's time, events pertaining to the nation of Israel under the so-called Greco-Macedonian Empire. But in fact, Gabriel, under the direction and inspiration of the Spirit of God, is linking the things that Antiochus did to that of the future man of sin, the Antichrist, who will rise to power during the tribulation period. So he's linking the things that Antiochus did to the Antichrist. So take, for example, in verse 20, as we go on. It says, The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media or Medea and Persia. Now we, we actually use this verse as, as a reference to when we were speaking of the ram back in chapter 7, or, uh, or I should say the beginning of chapter 8, the ram and the, and the, uh, the he-goat. The ram is, of course, uh, the kings of Medea and Persia. Uh, the, Persia the Persian horn of the ram was the larger of the two because they were the strongest, and they came later. And the rough goat, as he is called here, is the king of Grecia or Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. But we know, as, as we studied back when we did at the early part of the chapter, that this was Alexander the Great. Now, that being broken, which is the horn, remember Alexander died at the age of 32 uh, and, uh, and left that whole kingdom to those other four, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of that nation, but not in his power. So they weren't really combined as a, as a unit. Uh, they were all from this Greece a Greco-Macedonian empire, but now they established their four empires. We talked about that last week. So we've already covered this passage that speaks of the identity of the ram and the rough goat being, of course, this uh, Greek-Macedonian kingdom. So this was history already fulfilled, uh, but not for Daniel because that was still for the future for him, but we've seen it fulfilled. So we know who all of these characters are. But then when we get to verse 23 of our text, it says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding, dark sentences shall stand up. 
And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully. And, and, and that's, again, King James is a little bit different in the usage of words. This is just, when he destroys wonderfully, doesn't mean that, oh, it's wonderful what he does. But it's, it's kind of wonder-filled. You're full of wonder as, as to what's going on. Why is it happening in the way that he's doing it? And, and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And, of course, that's speaking of Israel. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. Now, what that means is it, it doesn't mean that, you know, that Antiochus was somebody who at the end of the day, you know, went home and, and made pretty flowers, you know, like arts and crafts kind of stuff. No, the word means deceit. He causes deceit to prosper. He's a deceitful leader, a deceitful man. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. Now what what sounds interesting about that? By peace he shall destroy many. He promises peace. But he doesn't deliver peace. Who does that remind us of? The Antichrist, going back to the book of Revelation and what we see early on in the book of Revelation, dealing with uh, there in chapter 6 and, and the, the four horsemen, the one horseman, the very first one, riding on, on a white horse, but, you know, he has a bow but no arrows, you know. It's kind of like, you know, there's peace, but the arrows got to be hiding somewhere. The fact of the matter is, this is pointing to the Antichrist. By peace shall he destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Well, who is that? He stands up against Jesus, who is the prince of peace. But he's also the prince of princes. He also is the Lord of lords. He's also the king of kings. He's all of that wrapped up as the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without hand. In other words, he's going to be broken, but not by any human means. And then verse 26 says, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. This helps us a little bit to understand not only the visions that he received when he received them, that is Daniel, but also helps us to understand the 2300 days. You know, that it wasn't just, uh, as some people thought it was just, you know, if it was just evenings, then maybe he's just talking about 1150 days. Uh, no, that it doesn't compute that well. But evening and mornings does kind of give us an idea that we're dealing with days here. So the vision of the evening and morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Now, we're going to come back to all of that in just a moment. But the initial interpretation, of course, points to Antiochus Epiphanes. He is described as a king of fierce countenance. An interesting word, the word fierce here which means to be brazen, it means to be shameless. The same word is used of a harlot who strengthens her face shamelessly, as in Proverbs 7, verse 13. And I'll use this only so you can see what word is used there for that. Uh, So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him. The The impudent face is that face of shamelessness. The face of brazenness, a, a, a face of, of strong, you know, determination, but in an evil sense, in an evil way, of getting her way. 
And that is the same word that is used of Antiochus here. But it's also, it's, it's also to transfer our, to our understanding of the Antichrist as well. So from Antiochus, certain facts can be learned about the coming of the future desecrator who is the Antichrist. First of all, he is going to achieve great power by subduing others. He is going to achieve great power by subduing others. That is what verse 24 of our text says. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment, but let's read on. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. So his, his whole way of doing things is to go and take, go and conquer, go and vanquish, go and destroy. What is happening today in the Middle East? What, is, what, what are we learning about this group called ISIS or IS, the Islamic State, that are still causing all kinds of, of, of terror throughout uh, Iraq and Syria and other places in the Middle East. And they're starting to expand. What are they doing? They continue to say that they're there to conquer, to establish a caliphate. The caliphate that was, that was destroyed back in 1923. The Turkish caliphate, but that was the caliphate that they all that they all responded to and respected. What's happening today? They want to restore that. Islam, in general, is all about conquering. And I guess I I guess I can say this with you know with all due respect to everyone here, but folks. When you hear politicians say that Islam is a, is a peaceful religion, they're lying through their teeth. Because they can't possibly believe that, number one. And they can't possibly believe that Islam is only about religion. It isn't. It's about government. It's about economics. It's about taking over the world. Really, bottom line. That's what it is. That's why when they say that we worship the same God, they're lying through their teeth. Because how can we worship the same God when our God is a God of love and their God is a God of war? See, so... gets us not wanting to ever listen to politicians again. But this is what's happening in our world. This is what's happening all around us. The very nature of the Antichrist is to conquer. When we, when we talk about this little struggle between whether it's from the West or from the East, Let's face it, where's all the trouble? Who went to the West to take over? Who has replaced more churches with mosques in, in, in England and in France and in the Netherlands 
Where are the churches? Where are the Christians? But synagogues are being bombed and destroyed. Churches, as a matter of fact, they stopped a plot in France. Did you read about it today? They stopped a a plot in France to destroy churches by groups that are sympathetic with, with ISIS. Where are we today? I say, where are we as the church? Some, some segments of the church today, they don't want to deal with prophecy. They say, oh, no, no, it's, it's, all, it's already done. And we're seeing, it, we're seeing it day by day by looking at the scriptures, talking about areas like Persia, which is Iran. Egypt, Egypt's there. Syria, Syria's there. It's in the Bible. Prophecy is being fulfilled every day. Because Jesus is coming. That's the one prophecy we need to be looking for. And waiting for. And excited about. And serving God for. Because He's coming soon. But this great power of subduing others is, is, is in this very movement. Did we forget what happened on September the 11th, 2001? And what's happened since? It could get worse. Thank God for the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, and the church. The true church that doesn't back down and doesn't get off of the Word of God and go off into other kind of things. We have to stay in the Word of God. So, number one, I go on on with that. Oh. Be here for two hours doing that. He's going to achieve great power by subduing others. Verse 24. Secondly, he is going to rise by uh, or rise to power by promising that false security, which is verse 25. Again, what did it say in verse 25? Through his policy also he shall cause deceit or craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the princes of Prince of Peace. We'll talk about that later. But he is going to rise by power, by promising false security. What is, doesn't that sound like the Antichrist? That Paul mentions in first and second, well, second Thessalonians, when he talks about, uh, you know, the peace. Everybody's, you know, excited about peace, and then, boom, you know, sudden destruction comes. Sudden destruction. A treaty, peace treaty, yay. We have peace in our times. You remember what happened when someone said that? Who was that? Neville Chamberlain. Back in the late 30s. Went to to go make a peace treaty with the enemy. Adolf Hitler. And Hitler said, okay, go ahead. Let's have peace in our time. And Neville Chamberlain goes proudly and says, we got peace in our time. What happened after that? Not long after that? Czechoslovakia is overrun. Austria, Poland, and eventually came the Battle of Britain where they were going to destroy all of Britain and take over England. Wow. History repeating itself. And being a precursor to what is yet to come. 
Are we going to again do the same? Obviously, somebody's going to do it. I hope we're not around. Number three, he is going to be insolent, which means he is going to be cunning and intelligent and extremely persuasive. Look at verse 23 again. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Understanding the dark things, secrets. That kind of scares me a little bit about the United States of America. Now we have all of these uh, quote-unquote conspiracy theorists, you know, who like to talk a lot about things like the, uh, you know, the Illuminati and all of that kind of stuff. And you know, you can spend a lo- you can spend too much time, you know, digging, you know, looking under rocks for those kind of demons. But the point is, there are a lot of secrets out there that we don't know about. And, uh, you know, we would love to have a leader that truly believes in God and truly believes in the cross of Jesus Christ and, and doesn't make any bones about it. Not going to make him perfect. We've had good presidents in the past, you know, that believed in the Lord and, and they've made mistakes, but, you know, they owned up to them. But I just get a little weary about one that doesn't ever talk about it. And we'll talk really more about Islam scares me a little bit. I'm not scared a whole lot because I know who's in charge. But the point of the matter is, we've got to watch these things out. We've got to watch. For he will be controlled by another, that is Satan. Look at verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. So this Antichrist. Just as much as Antiochus Epiphanes was, was, was possessed by the enemy, Haman back in the book of Esther was possessed by the enemy, many others until we got to Adolf Hitler who was also possessed by the enemy, all forerunners to the Antichrist who will be possessed by Satan. Five, he is going to be an adversary of Israel and overpower and defeat Israel to his authority. That, of course, again, um, seen in our text. About destroying, verse 24. Shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. The holy people, the holy ones of Israel. Six. He will rise up in opposition to the prince of princes, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 25. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And that is, that is number seven. His rule will be terminated by divine judgment. Not by man's hand, but by God's hand. Okay. So we got those seven points there. Give them to you kind of quick. He's going to achieve great power by subduing others. He's going to rise to power by promising false security. He's going to be insolent, cunning, intelligent, extremely persuasive. He will be controlled by another that is Satan. He's going to be an adversary of Israel and even overpower and defeat them. He will rise up in opposition to Jesus and yet uh, he doesn't conquer him because the Lord will terminate him. So we can conclude then that there is a dual reference 
in this striking prophecy. It reveals Israel's history under the Seleucids and specifically under Antiochus during the time of Greek domination, but it also looks forward to Israel's experiences under Antichrist. So we would do well then to review some of the previous scriptural references that we've used recently. For instance, in referring to the Antichrist causing deceit to prosper. Let's look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. But that's how he comes, with all deception. The deception of unrighteousness. Now, folks, that's another thing that we need to be concerned about in our day and time, and especially in our own country. Righteousness, the Scripture says in the book of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Yet we are today guarding sin with law. Do you understand what we're saying here? That's the deception of of unrighteousness. And then in referring to exalting himself, the scriptures say of the Antichrist, and just go back to verse 4 of that same chapter, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, is, that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Antiochus did it. Antichrist will do it. And both Antiochus and Antichrist will have the same heart attitude toward God as did Lucifer. So remember what Lucifer in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I add verse 15 to this. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Very simply, you don't want to mess with God. You don't want to mess with His throne. You don't want to mess with His land. And you don't want to mess with His people. Both of them will be struck down without human means. Revelation 19, verse 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. God did that. In fact, if you do a little bit more study of the history of Antiochus Epiphanes, you realize God took him out. Honestly. It it was disease, but it was God taking him out. It wasn't by human hand. Daniel is then commanded to seal up the vision. Not so much to keep it a secret. God does not command Daniel to seal the vision, to keep it a secret, but in the sense of concluding the vision and preserving it for the future. For us, the time is near. 
Consider Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy, not only the book of Revelation, but also the prophecy that we're reading in Daniel. And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. The time is at hand. Is it still sealed? Is the prophecy still sealed? No, we have Revelation that's unsealed it in a, in a sense. Consider chapter 22, verse 10 of Revelation. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You see, Daniel was commanded to seal the book because it was completed. John is commanded not to seal it. And he says, the time is at hand. The same thing. The time is at hand. The time is at hand for us today. So we close with Daniel's reaction to all that, he has, ta- all that has taken place. We close with this. Daniel eight twenty-seven, the last verse of our text. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. You see, I mean, you get a vision like this. I mean, you can't, it's hard to find anything to compare with. I mean, I could, I could tell you, listen, some of you guys go to these weird, scary movies, right? You know, the, the, nowadays they're just bloody, bloody movies. You know, oh, I'm going to have nightmares. Oh, you know. Yeah. I have more nightmares by eating pizza too late at night, you know. Uh, so, you know, the next day I'll probably be okay with Pepto-Bismol or something, you know, whatever. But the point of the matter is, when you receive a vision like this, it's not just, you know, it's not the next day, well, I guess I'll go and do whatever, you know, whatever I have to do, and I'll go back to work or whatever. No. I mean, he was sick. But he did. Afterward, he says, I rose up and did the king's business. I, I, I got it. I, I got hit. I got hit hard. I, I was sick by all of what I saw. But he didn't stay down. He got up. He did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Well, it was sealed. We could probably sympathize with Daniel after this ordeal. He, like us, could not have understood why the Lord would allow such a powerful oppressor and persecutor of his people to come to power and attain a level of success. But this didn't keep him, as we see here. Then keep him from doing his duty, which remind us that having an interest in prophecy or prophetic issues should make us want to be more concerned with our king's business, with our king's business, not less concerned about it. You see, we need to be more concerned about what God has called us to be as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to be more concerned about the people that we see around us that are going to hell in a handbasket. I mean... Just because they don't, they don't know. They don't. They, they never heard. They 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 don't care because they they don't realize how important it is. They don't see the news like we see the news. They don't hear the news like we hear the news. Because we have the word of God to show us that th- these things were prophesied thousands of years ago, and it's going to happen because it's happening today. If we're that interested in prophecy, let's use that interest to tell, to, to, sell, to tell somebody that Jesus is coming soon and they really need to get their lives right. And they need to come to the Lord. And they need to come to eternal life in Jesus Christ. They need to come out of the darkness into the God's light. They need to realize that spiritually they're dead and they need to have the, light, uh, the, the life of the, of, of the Spirit of God in them. They need to come to spiritual awakening. They need to come to a new birth 
We did. Someone led us to that, didn't they? God spoke to the prophet Daniel not only to comfort him and to comfort the Jewish people who were in captivity, but to comfort us and to show us that God is still in complete control. We can look at these verses tonight and see their fulfillment in, in, in Antiochus, but, but remember for Daniel that this was some 350 years in the future that these things would take place. I mean, 350 years, he says, this is going to happen. You know, he doesn't know it in that count. But even still, Daniel was an older man. That, you know, Daniel could die at any moment. Or he could die in a, a month or a week or a, a year or, or two years later. And he didn't just say, there, well, you know, that's nice. Let them worry about it, Lord. Well, I'll, give them the, I'll give them the prophecy and then let them worry about it. I won't worry. I'll just go to Starbucks. No, he was concerned. As we should be concerned. I'm concerned every time I see what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, there are new developments every day. And most of them are not good. But I don't, I, I don't worry because I know God's in control. But that doesn't keep me from being concerned. It shouldn't keep any of us from being concerned. And so as God tells us of another who will arise like Antiochus, we should in no way doubt what he has said or try to spiritualize it. It will come to pass. What we should do is try to glean from these verses and understand what this future beast will be like. In doing so, it should fire us up to see more and more and more people come to know the Lord before we are removed and before this man of sin is revealed. So let's close with one verse. A verse from Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, in other words, what things were written before, were written for our learning. They're written for us today that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The things we're studying today are so that we might have hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every day, keep looking up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws near. He's coming. And folks, I can tell you this right now, and I don't say this flippantly, but this is an exciting time for believers in Jesus Christ. Because we are seeing the Word of God fulfilled. And, but it should, it, it should stir our hearts to love others into this kingdom, the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should stir our hearts every day. I, I'll tell you this. I, I'm not one who believes. I, I don't believe this. I, I don't believe that, yeah, because we're living in the last days, you know, you know churches are going to you know, start having uh, you know, people leaving and blah, blah, blah. There's always that. that. That's been going on for a long time. I'm convinced that if we will get busy in, in doing the king's business, we will bring people to the Lord. We can fill this place up every Wednesday night. I still believe that. I still believe we can fill up Saturday night service and the two Sunday morning services if we will do what God has called us to do and take the gospel to every person. That's not for just the handful of pastors or elders and leaders in the church. That's everybody. We have been called to teach the word of God to you, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4. 
verses 11 and 12. You are called to do the work of the ministry. By the lives you lead, by the things that you do in this world, people need Jesus. I've always loved that Steve Green song, People Need the Lord. People need, I mean, if you ever listen to that song, I encourage you, get on iTunes and, and buy it. So I think it's only 99 cents. Maybe it's 129, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, listen to that song. Or if you have it on CD, listen to it. People need the Lord. I mean, that, that stirs my heart every time to want to tell people about Jesus. Because we're living in those kinds of times today. We need to be stirred, folks. Hope you're stirred. Let's stand. Let's get ready to go home. And when I say let's get ready to go home, you know what I mean. All right? Now if my iPad will cooperate here, then I can go home. <laughs> All right. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. I just love technology. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for once again giving us life and breath so that we can serve you, worship you, praise you, honor you, study your word, learn of you, grow more and more into the love of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you give us opportunities each and every day to tell someone, anyone about Jesus. Not to be worried about the outcome. Just let, the, just let the Holy Spirit, Lord, work in us. And let us look at the Holy Spirit do His work in the lives of those who need you. As we needed you one day. And then our lives were changed for good. So, Father, help us understand that as we look at these last days, as, as we look at the things that are happening in the book of, of Daniel. Lord, help us to truly... And rightly divide your word. May you be honored and glorified as we leave this place today and as we meet again. If you tarry, you can come tonight if you want, Lord. But Lord, if you tarry, we look forward to seeing each other again, to worship you once again, to honor you once again, and to study your word once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.